As we prepare to open the word of God, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are ever faithful, ever strong, ever beautiful and wonderful and redemptive. Lord God, uh, the book of Ruth is a story about your mighty arm, your mighty hand working, redeeming uh, in very uh, strange and unpromising circumstances. And so I pray, Lord, as we look at the first part of this story, that we would uh, take great hope in what we are reading and hearing. And Lord, of course, that we would go forth uh, later today and this week and be doers of the word that we hear. Father, help us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, there was once a three-year-old boy who wanted to learn how to play the violin. But being only three years of age, a regular-sized violin was too big for him to handle, to manage. And so he began to learn on a toy violin. And since he could not hold a regular-sized violin, uh, he was not permitted to enter into a prominent music conservatory. And then in the next year of his life, at the tender age of four years old, this boy became afflicted with polio, which, among other things, meant now that he had to use crutches in order to help him to walk. So lots of real obstacles in this young boy's life, not the most promising beginnings for a budding violinist. It turns out that this young boy that I'm describing is still alive today, only now he's a 75-year-old man named Itzhak Perlman. Itzhak Perlman is considered to be the most preeminent violinist in our world. At age 18, he played Carnegie Hall. Uh, he went on to play with every major orchestra in the world. He's received multiple Grammy Awards. He is a true master of the violin. The story of Itzhak Perlman is a great story of unpromising beginnings giving way to something truly great. The story of Ruth is a story of unpromising beginnings flowering out into a truly great outcome. This morning, we're diving into the first part of the story, the, the part of the story where we are presented with very unpromising beginnings. The book of Ruth starts in a minor key. It starts with tragedy. Before we get to the joy, before we get to the victory in the story, we must first immerse ourselves patiently in the trouble and in the pain. And so we begin this morning at verse 1 of chapter 1. Now, this morning, the plan is only to traverse through the initial five verses of the story, but we're going to spend significant time, especially on the first verse, Ruth 1.1, because this verse provides us with several important details. The first part of verse 1 reads, 
In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, as we noted last Sunday, if you were with us, the story of Ruth is set in the time period when the judges ruled. We need to grasp at least a thing or two about this time when the judges ruled. This was a time period in Israel's history which fell in between the death of Joshua and the coronation of the first king in Israel, Saul. This was a time period that lasted roughly 200 years. It was a period when Israel had no king, no centralized government. It was a time of political and social chaos, a time of gross violence, a time of religious corruption, a time of tribal fracture and division, which threatened at times to disintegrate the nation of Israel itself. The days when the judges ruled was a time of rampant idolatry and a turning away from Yahweh, God of Israel. After Joshua died, there was no longer any strong, single leader of the nation who acted to hold the tribes together in a cohesive sort of a way and, and lead the tribes cohesively in the ways of Yahweh. Now, in the time of the judges, you had several different occasional leaders uh, these warlords or judges who God raised up in different areas of the land and at different times to provide this occasional leadership. The situation was far from ideal, and it led to great moral chaos and religious apostasy. The people of God ended up Canaanizing, Canaanizing, worshiping the gods of Canaan and adopting the religious practices of Canaan, largely ignoring their covenant with Yahweh. The repeated pattern that we see in the book of Judges, in the days when the judges ruled, the repeated pattern is this. The people disobey Yahweh they break covenant with him. Then the people are oppressed by an enemy who comes in, at which point the people cry out to God. God hears their repentance, their cry of repentance, and he delivers them. And then that whole cycle repeats again. The people disobey again. They are oppressed again. They cry out again. God delivers them again. And it repeats again. And as this same cycle continues throughout the book of Judges, as it progresses in the book of Judges, it is a downward spiral. Things generally get worse as the cycle continues. Well, our story of Ruth is set 
in this stormy period of the judges. Probably our story is set in the latter portion of that 200-year period of the judges. Uh, And the reason I say that is because King David is mentioned in the book, recorded in the book of Ruth, and he's only three generations after Ruth herself. So probably we're in the latter stages of the days when the judges ruled. Victor Hamilton says that it was in this latter period of the judges when, he says, Israel's unfaithfulness and disloyalty to the ways of Yahweh had mushroomed, had mushroomed. Our verse says that it was in these particular days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, a famine. Now here we need to consider this famine on two different levels. First of all, the famine on the purely human level, the effects of the famine on the human level. And then secondly, we need to consider the famine on what we could call the theological level. So first of all, famine at the human level. Now, you and I, in 2021, we have lavish amounts of food that is available to us, trucked in on a daily basis to SuperC, to Provigo, to Maxi, Metro, wherever it is we shop. And, and the food comes from all over the place every day. Our experience is that we can simply hop on the bus or hop into the car and we can commute over to the store of our choice and choose from a dizzying variety of breads, meats, uh, canned goods, uh, peanut butters. There's probably, I don't know, 18 different kinds of peanut butter that we can choose from. That's our experience. But imagine living in this ancient society where you had no box stores that were full of food. In order for you to have your staple of bread on your table, it depended on rain falling on your fields. You depended also on hail staying off your fields. And you depended also on insect plagues staying away from your fields as well. For you in this ancient society, famine that was brought about by drought or brought about by hail or a plague of insects or famine that was brought about by enemy invasion, this was a catastrophic thing. It meant no bread. It meant an empty stomach. As we read these opening words of Ruth where this famine is mentioned, I think it is good for us to pause here and to consider the physical emptiness, discomfort, the distress that this situation would bring. In fact, A good exercise for us is to read slowly sometime, we won't do it now, but read slowly through Jeremiah 14, verses 1 through 6, 
where in a situation of drought and famine, the people of Israel there in that passage are depicted as lamenting, languishing, crying, and covering their heads as they mourn. In some cases that are recorded in scripture, famine led to cannibalism. So we can start to see why famine in this ancient society was so feared, why it was such a terrifying prospect in this ancient world. Recall this also, that when David sinned in taking the census, this is uh, 2 Samuel 24, when David sinned in taking the census, God gave him three choices for consequences. What were the, conse- what were the choices? David could choose famine, or he could choose an enemy, of, enemy invasion, or the third choice was he could choose pestilence. Now, what's significant is David bypassed the choices of famine and the choice of invasion, and he chose pestilence instead. He chose a biological plague. What do we see there? We see that in David's thinking, famine was worse than the biological plague. And so he avoided choosing famine. Famine, the point is, famine was a terrifying prospect in this ancient world. But now, as promised, we also need to consider this famine in the land at the theological level. The question here is, was God involved in this particular famine in the days when the judges ruled? And if God was involved, how was he involved? We need to be clear on this, that famines in general are not always the consequence for disobedience to God. But in this particular case, here in Ruth 1 verse 1, I want to argue that this particular famine was a consequence of the disobedience of God's people. God brought this famine. God is a promise-keeping God. And what God was doing here with this famine is he was keeping his promise in Deuteronomy 28 and in Deuteronomy 32 and in Leviticus 26. One of the things that God promised in those passages was famine if the people were to break his covenant if the people were to drift away from him in disobedience. And Israel at this particular time, when the judges ruled, they were the poster child for covenant infidelity, for transgression against God. So it seems clear, I think, as we read the wider canon of Scripture, it seems clear that this famine that's mentioned here in Ruth 1.1 was inflicted on Israel by the Lord because Israel had sinned so grievously against him. Now, if you are Israel in this moment, 
in response to the presence of this famine, what move should you make? You should fall on your face and repent, humbled under the Lord, seeking his forgiveness. You should turn away from your idolatry and turn toward him. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his, and his two sons. So now we have this family of four, this so far unnamed family of four, dad, mom, and their two boys. They travel from Bethlehem in the promised land over into Moab, and they do this in order to find food in their time of scarcity and hunger. Bethlehem, or Bait Lachem, means house of bread. That's what the word means, but right now, there was no bread in the house because of the famine. And so this man and his family pick up and they do what is sensible. They do what was reasonable. They do the pragmatic thing. They travel east away from their empty cupboards toward full cupboards. They travel from Judah to Moab in search of food. But now we pause here. We wonder a little bit as we read this. Something that jumps out to us is the fact that nowhere here in the story does it say that this man and his family received a word from the Lord that they should pack up and go from the promised land over into Moab. God apparently did not direct them to do this. Well, sure, the move over to Moab, it, it made good sense from the standpoint of their empty stomachs, from the standpoint of their hunger and their physical need. But interestingly enough, we don't have any record of God directing them to do this. And so the difficult question that the text is asking us to ask the difficult question is, should they have left Judah for Moab? In their book on Ruth, the authors Lau and Goswell say that in this time period in biblical history, the default location for God's people is the promised land unless God specifically instructs them to leave. Close quote. 
Lau and Goswell argue that this family should have stayed in Judah, even during this famine, repenting to the Lord, continuing to trust in the Lord to provide, asking the Lord to end the famine. But we have no record in the text of their repentance before God. They simply pick up and they go when the famine hits. Hmm. They go to Moab. Oh boy. Moab. The origins of this nation of Moab were in the incestuous relationship that Lot had had with his eldest daughter in Genesis 19, which produced the person of Moab. The nation of Israel and the nation of Moab never got along very well. Moab's king Balak had hired Balaam to curse Israel in Numbers 22. The women of Moab had seduced the people of Israel toward the worship of false gods in Numbers chapter 25. And in these days when the judges ruled, the Moabite king Eglon had ruled over Israel oppressively for 18 years, according to Judges chapter 3. Israel and Moab never got along very well. And what's interesting here, as this family of four travels over to Moab, what's interesting is that back in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 4, the Lord there had indicted Moab for not coming to meet Israel as Israel had been coming out of Egypt. Moab failed to meet Israel in that moment with bread and water. But now, here in Ruth 1.1, isn't it interesting? We have this Israelite family going into Moab seeking bread and water. Interesting. Should they have gone into Moab? It makes us wonder. Well, as we move now to verse 2, we get names. We get the names of the four people in this family. The name of the man, the name of the father in the family was Elimelech, Elimelech, which means, my God is king. And the question that arises from the text is, did Elimelech live up to his name, my God is king, as he traveled out of the promised land, having received no direction to do so from God? Is Elimelech by his actions here showing that his God is king? We, we ask the question as we consider the meaning of his name, we ask the question about Elimelech, along with being physically empty from the famine, was Elimelech also spiritually empty as he picks up and moves his family with no direction to do so from the Lord? The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, which means pleasant one. 
And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. Now, we're not 100% sure on the meanings of Machlon and Kilion, but Daniel Block has suggested that Machlon's name is related to a verb meaning to be sick. And so Machlon's name may mean something like sickly. And then the name of Kilion may be related to a verb meaning to be finished or to come to an end. So that his name may mean something like spent. Did Elimelech and Naomi name their boys sickly and spent to reflect the departing glory of Israel in the time of the judges? We wonder. Our verse continues by telling us that this family of four were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, the first time in the Bible where we have the combination of Ephrath and Bethlehem is in Genesis 35, verses 16 through 19, where Rachel dies as she gives birth to Benjamin. And then, of course, later on, in the biblical story, after the time of the story of Ruth, we have David described in 1 Samuel 17, 12 as the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. So already here in Ruth 1, 2, we can see that this family is connected backwards and forwards in the Bible with a very prominent lineage. They are of the Ephrathite clan. Uh, and they lived in what would later become, of course, the city of David, Bethlehem. The end of verse 2 says, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, for those of you who are visual learners, um, and for those of you who, who may be less familiar with the story of Ruth, I thought that this little diagram that's on the screen might be helpful. In pictorial form, Here's what's going on in the first two verses of Ruth that we've just looked at. So we have this family of four. We have Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Machlon and Kilion, traveling away from Judah. So Judah is there in gray, and they're traveling toward Moab. So I give this little diagram to you. It's fairly simplistic, but I give it to you for whatever it's worth. And we're going to come back to it again in a moment or two to see how it changes as the story progresses. Let's go to verse three then. We said at the beginning today that the story of Ruth begins in a minor key. We've already located the story in the stormy time period of the judges. We've already talked about the questionable move of this family into Moab. Now we get real life heartache in verse three. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two Sons. So now we're down to a family of three. Now it's Naomi and her two sons, sickly and spent. 
Elimelech has died. There is a funeral. So now our diagram, coming back to it, it looks like this. Notice that they're in Moab, but now there is no Elimelech. He has died. Naomi is now a single mom with two kids. Verse 4, these, these two sons of Naomi, these Israelite, Israelite boys, Machlon and Kilion, these, sickly and spent, they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. Now, we don't know what the name Orpah means, but we think the name Ruth might mean something like refreshment, although this is uncertain. More importantly, both Ruth and Orpah were Moabite women, marrying the Israelite sons of Naomi. Now, in former days, in the, in the nation of Israel's history, in former days, when Israelite men had cozied up to Moabite women, see Numbers 25, when this had happened, it did not end well. So here, when we read, these took Moabite, Moabite wives, we, we wince a little as we read this, if, we, if we've been reading the Bible. How are these relationships going to end up? And what we have to bear firmly in mind at this point of the story of Ruth is that, listen, Ruth is not yet converted to the God of Israel. Not at this point in the story. That comes later. For now, Ruth is a Moabite woman, a Moabitess, who presumably, here at this point in the story, she still worships Chemosh, the Moabite god, who in 2 Kings 3.27, Chemosh is worshipped, how? With child sacrifice. So back to the diagram. Here's how things look now. We have five people. Naomi, along with her two sons and their new Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, still over in Moab. Let's keep reading the story. Naomi, along with her two sons and their two Moabite wives, lived there in Moab about 10 years. 10 years. That's more than double the time that myself and my family have been here in Montreal. 10 years is plenty of time to get settled into a place, right? But what happens in verse 5? Well, the minor key that we've been talking about, it gets even louder now. It gets more pronounced. Both Machlon and Kilion died. So that the woman, that is Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. So get this. Of the six people that we have now been introduced to in the book of Ruth, Half of them are dead within the first five verses of the story. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and now her two sons, Machlon and Kilion, are all dead. Can you imagine the pain that Naomi must have been experiencing? I mean, imagine it. To, to stand at the graveside 
of not only one loved one, but three since coming to Moab. Surely Naomi must have had serious questions about God's love, about God's care for her. In the words of Sinclair Ferguson, quote, he says this, In these cruel losses, Naomi must feel that God has thrust his sword into her heart, twisted it, and then thrust it in deeper. It is surely tragedy enough to lose a husband, but why has the sovereign Lord thrust the sword in again and then twisted it round in her soul? Close quote. Now our diagram looks like this. Naomi had come across the border into Moab earlier. She'd come across the border into Moab with the fullness and the security of her family of four. Now here she is on Moabite soil, bereft of husband and two sons. Disoriented, reeling, feeling immense loss, feeling confusion there with her two Moabite daughters-in-law by her side. Were these deaths divine judgments? It's best not to make too many guesses on that because the text is silent on whether they were consequential divine judgments or not. The fact is that now we have Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, three women alone without their men in a society where women who lacked husbands and who lacked sons to care for them and provide for them, they were at a serious disadvantage. Notice in verse 5 that Despite the fact that we've already had Naomi's name given to us in verse 2, now in verse 5, she's just the woman. It's like Barry Webb says here, he says this, quote, It is as though Naomi has lost not only her family, but even her own name. Close quote. Yes. Again, here in verse 5, she's known simply as the woman. It's like her name has been erased now because her husband and her sons have been erased. Now, having come through these first five verses of Ruth, it would be hard to think of a more unpromising beginning to a story than this. I wholeheartedly agree with Eugene Peterson when he says this concerning this beginning to the story of Ruth. Peterson says, No material could be less promising as the raw data for a gospel story than that which is provided in the first chapter of Ruth. A famine, three deaths, 
Three widows and anarchy in the days of the judges. One more time, no material could be less promising as the raw data for a gospel story than that which is provided in the first chapter of Ruth. A famine, three deaths, three widows, and anarchy. And yet, my friends, and yet, Ruth turns out to be a beautiful, glorious gospel story. But it begins in this way, in this minor key, in this atmosphere that is so stormy and so full of sorrow and so full of loss. Again, as Peterson puts it, and we've seen this this morning, Ruth begins with a famine, three deaths, three widows, and anarchy. There is another story in the Bible that starts off in deathly tones, but ends in glorious gospel. And of course, that's the story of our Lord Jesus Christ, born into a world of death, Herod on a murderous rampage, killing all the children in the region who were under the age of two, trying to destroy the infant Jesus. The earthly story of our Lord and Savior Jesus begins in those stormy tones, doesn't it? But of course, the level of gospel the level of good news that blossoms in the story of Jesus Christ, it far eclipses, far eclipses that in the story of Ruth. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are the greatest redemptive events that the world will ever know. The story of Jesus who comes in the lineage of Ruth and Boaz. His story is the story of the one whom the prophets prophesied. To the exiles, the prophets promised an end to hunger, a coming time of plenty. They promised no more famine. They promised a coming age in which feasting on rich food would be the experience of the people of God. Jesus arises on the human scene and he declares that he is the bread of life. That the person who comes to him will never hunger or thirst. I wonder if you feel a hungering in your soul and a thirst in your soul. Come to Jesus, the bread of life, and you will never hunger or thirst. Jesus is the satiation of our every human need and desire. Elimelech and his family went to Moab to find bread for life. As believers, we go to Jesus, who is the bread of life. And according to Romans 8, not even famine can separate us from his love. Not even famine. 
He is with us in our stormy times. He is with us in our times of lack. He has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Isn't that a great promise and a great truth? Believer, he is with you. Wherever you are, he's with you right now. Yes, he is. He's with you right now. So talk to him. Lean on him. Depend on him. Feast on him in your famine. And in him, you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise and thank you, Lord, for your perfect and beautiful and benevolent, loving, joyful, faithful, powerful character. Lord God, we thank you that even in this time when our world is shaking, Christ Jesus rules and reigns from heaven. We thank you that you have exalted him to the highest place through his cross and and the obedience of his cross and resurrection. Lord, that you have exalted him and that he will come again. Maranatha, we pray, come Lord Jesus, gather us home. We thank you that your promises are true. We thank you for your goodness in our stormy times. We ask that you would walk with us this week in a powerful, redeeming way. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello once again and welcome. This is a limited edition set of 12 episodes of 1225 Live that we're doing in conjunction with the current sermon series at Snowden on the book of Ruth. Thank you for joining us for these. These are meant to be supplementary or extended discussions of what we're covering as we travel through the book of Ruth together. As we consider the person of Ruth, the fact that she is a Moabite who marries twice into Israel, first to one of the sons of Naomi, and then secondly, of course, to Boaz, there is something of a problem. According to Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, Moabites were forbidden from entering into the assembly of Yahweh until the 10th generation. So how was it that Ruth, a Moabitess, could marry into Israel in the way that she does in the book of Ruth? How can Ruth be incorporated like this into Israel, into the life of Israel, uh, and the book of Ruth not say anything explicitly critical about that? Well, as concerns Ruth's first marriage, probably to Mahlon, at that point in the story, Ruth was not yet converted to Yahweh, to the faith of Israel. Her conversion happens a little bit uh, later on in the story. Could it be, and here I'm just simply speculating, I'm not suggesting that there's a definitive answer to this, but could it be that because this Israelite man married an unconverted Moabite, that this is the reason that he dies as he does in Ruth 1 verse 5. Could it be that this marriage was in violation of the covenant in Deuteronomy 23 and the death of this Israelite was consequential uh, 
It was a consequence. It was divine judgment for that. Could it be? Again, we're not entirely sure. The text is silent on this. So it's best not to land uh, too heavily on what, what, what we might consider to be a definitive answer. Uh, we're just raising the question here. Now, as concerns Ruth's second marriage to Boaz, which happens in Ruth chapter 4, um, presumably we look at this, and on the, on the face of it at least, it seems like it could be another violation of what God had laid out in Deuteronomy 23, except this time around there is a massive difference. At that point in the story, as Ruth and Boaz get married, Ruth has already converted to Yahweh. She is now in the life and in the faith of Israel. Uh, presumably this means that she has renounced uh, her Moabite gods. Now way back in Genesis chapter 17, as God is making covenant with Abraham, God allowed for the possibility that foreigners could come into covenant with him, come into the faith of Israel. Should a foreigner put his or her faith in Yahweh, God of Israel, that person could be adopted into the covenant family of Israel. Because after all, God's whole purpose was to save the nations through the nation of Israel. And so Ruth is welcomed into the family of God, just as uh, Rahab the Canaanite is welcomed into the family of God, just as Gentiles like you and I are welcomed into the family of God, putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then the supposed dissonance between uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23 and the story of Ruth marrying Boaz in the book of Ruth is really no dissonance at all. What we have here is a one follower of Yahweh marrying another follower of Yahweh. So we'll leave things there for now. God bless you this week and we'll see you back here, hopefully, Lord willing, next Monday.